Madame Versailles by Melville Davison Post. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. I was surprised on a morning in early February to find Bishop Simonton's carriage before Randolph Mason's house. I have known churchmen to appeal to Mason in desperate straits, perhaps upon a theory that one should try all temporal doors before knocking on the gates of alabaster, but that the aesthetic and venerable Bishop of New York should require profane assistance was quite beyond belief. I pulled up short by my ancient friend, the crossing policeman. Scully, I said, I believe the ravages of age are beginning to mark me. Can it be Bishop Simonton's carriage I see yonder? The great Celt rapped himself gently on the belt-plate with his club. Sure, he said. It's not the ravages of age that's doing you any harm this morning, Mr. Parks. Tis his nib's wagon, all right. Some alderman must be squatting on the church lands, I said, to bring this good man out at a quarter before ten on a winter morning. Waste replied the Irish king, half covering his mouth with his gloved hand. "'Tis a woman!' Then he crossed the street to stop a line of drays. The mystery was now beyond conjecture. I walked on slowly to the gate and up the flag-path to the house. Certain airy nebulous conceptions had, from the pleasantries of early Italian letters and recent scandalous posters along the bookstalls, presented themselves with piquant explanations. Within the house, a second and greater surprise awaited me. Pietro met me at the door, saying that Randolph Mason wished instantly to see me. I gave Pietro my coat and hat, and went at once to the private office. My state of mental flippancy had little prepared me for the type of woman who arose as I entered. I have not seen her like in New York. If the word elegant were not so thumbed, I should write it here as descriptive of her, not in a tinseled or bedizened sense, but as the panther is elegant, as the red silken horses of a rajah are elegant. High breeding down an immemorial line produces such animals, time through a hundred generations carving carefully like a gem engraver. Tall, supple, and straight, the eye steady, calm, reserved, fearless, the nose straight and thin, the lips fine, delicate, and resolute, the chin up, the black glossy hair parted in the middle and brushed back. She was gowned in well-fitting black. This woman was perhaps fifty years old. I instantly fitted her into the frame of a casement window along the battery in Charleston, or the white columns of an estate on the James. I bowed as she turned toward me. I think the statue of Nathan Hale, outside in the flurry of snow, would also have bowed had it been standing in my shoes. She did not speak to me at all, but waited in dignified silence for Mason to say what was necessary to be said. Mason was standing by his table, tapping it impatiently with the tips of his long, sensitive fingers. I thought the lines along his mouth were broken a bit his eyes a trifle warmer. But this was certainly a fancy, for when he spoke it was in his usual cold, even voice. 
Parks,' he said. "'You must find a certain variety actress calling herself Madame Versailles. "'She has in her possession a case of pearls belonging to Miss Carolyn Pickney. "'She will demand ten thousand dollars in cash for the return of these jewels. "'You will say to her that Miss Pickney has finally arranged to pay her this money, "'that on the tenth day of February, at ten o'clock, the vault officer of the Jefferson Trust Company, in the city of Richmond, in the presence of Miss Pickney here and you, will deliver to her ten thousand dollars in currency. She must bring with her the case of jewels, and hand it over to the vault officer, who, upon the payment of the money, will give it to Miss Pickney. This Madame Versailles is said to be under the protection of one Robert Henderson, a police detective of New York. This person may also be present, if Madame Versailles wishes him to be. You will arrange for this purchase with Madame Versailles. You will then accompany Miss Pickney to Richmond, and be present with her at the transfer of the money. Miss Pickney will personally attend to the other details of the matter. When Randolph Mason had finished speaking, the woman picked up a long coat from her chair and began to put it on. I helped her with the collar of it. She thrust her black-gloved hands in the deep pockets. Then she turned to Mason. "'These jewels were brought from India by my great-grandfather,' she said. "'They were worn by my great-grandmother at her wedding. By my grandmother. By my mother. Their value to me is beyond estimate.' "'Still, I do not wish to violate either the laws of Virginia or those of the United States in order to recover them. I do not greatly fear the laws of Virginia. It cannot be that my fathers have made laws that would permit a creature like this actress to retain my inheritance. But the laws of the United States are of the North. They may permit such things, I do not know. Federal judges in the South, it is said, are king's governors, often contravening, I am told, our wisest laws, our oldest customs, our most cherished ideas of justice. I do not wish to come into the presence of these overlords, nor to be subject to the impertinence of their attaches. I wish to be assured, Mr. Mason, of the entire safety of this plan. Mason's face showed annoyance. Madam, he said, a rubber of whist could not be safer. Then, said the woman, I bid you good morning. A little snow was falling, and I accompanied Miss Carolyn Pickney to Bishop Simonton's carriage, tucked in the skirts of her greatcoat, and closed the door. I think she must have taken me for a sort of upper servant, since she gave no evidence of my presence, except a stately nod at the carriage window. Here was a fine bundle of mysteries, coupled with the direction of Mason to go out and find Madame Versailles. Find an unknown variety actress, only the devil's imps knew where. Such birds had no marked tree to roost in. Besides, this person was probably Madame Gladys by now, or Estelle something or other. I could not go back to Mason for further light. He would stare at me and walk away. 
my directions were accurate. Find Madame Versailles first, and then go to Richmond. I turned up the collar of my greatcoat, and went down for a conference with the omniscient Scully. I found him directing commerce with the gestures of a Roman praetor. I darted past the row of cabs to his island of safety, and seized his hand. A moment later, when the tide had passed, he took my bill from between the fingers of his glove, and held it under his broad thumb. Then he smiled benignly. "'Mr. Parks,' he said, "'tis the speed limit you are after wishing to exceed.' "'No,' I said, "'I am the king of the Golden Mountain on the quest of a ferry.' "'Go along. You're fooling,' he said. "'By no means,' I answered. "'I want to find Madame Versailles.' He whistled softly. "'Madame Versailles, is it?' "'Tis only the devil that knows where she is now. "'But where she'll be at one to-night "'tis Scully that knows as well as the devil. "'In a Dago cafe on the Bowery, "'which is next door to Paddy Moran's dance-hall, "'she will be aiding and drinking and carrying on. "'She's a bad one, this Madame Versailles. "'Tis back to the tall weeds your friend Scully "'would advise you to be going.' At half-past twelve that night I found Madame Versailles and the café called Dago by my friend Scully. It was a fragment of Paris transplanted to the Bowery by Monsieur Popinot, an oily, obsequious little creature from the Montmartre. He came running out to the curb to bow me in. The coming of a hansom was an event. He enumerated his wares with true Latin enthusiasm. His caviar had arrived that very day. It was magnifique, and his wines, ah, monsieur, he alone in all this raw land had wines. His brother Anselm hunted France, nosed it, fingered it, tasted it, that he, Popino, might have champagne, fragrant like those little meadows nestling at the foothills of the Pyrenees. Burgundy, red like the poppies in the wheat-fields of the Oise, an absinthe. Here language failed him. He clasped his hands. Ravissante, monsieur. Madame Popineau, who presided over the cash drawer by the door, beamed upon me as I entered. She was a daughter of the little shops along the Seine, fat and vigilant, knowing instantly if the newcomer had the price of a glass of wine in his pocket. A virtue of the highest order to her, doubtless the only one remaining. I selected a little table by the wall, and not wishing to be poisoned, ordered a bottle of bass ale and a plate of dry biscuits, wiping out Popino's disgust with a generous tip. The place was evidently a bohemian rendezvous of a low order. The atmosphere was a stench of tobacco and sour wine. The floor was freshly sprinkled with new sawdust. The chairs and tables were of metal. Iron alone could resist large primitive emotions when they got in action. The crash of an elbow, the heave of a heavy boot-toe, did not wreck a wire chair. It could be straightened presently in the crack of a door. The place was filling up with jetsam from the undercurrents of New York. Gentlemen going swiftly down to the sill of the world, beasts coming up from it got somehow into evening clothes, sat well together under Monsieur Popineau's many-colored lights. It was the depravity of Paris without a touch of its seductive esprit. 
the naive mischievous greeting of the moulin rouge and the folie bergere je vous aime donnez-moi cinq francs was not here this place was an oak for crows i wondered on what limb of it perched madame versailles i was about to summon the good popinot to my assistance when a young man very drunk came in accompanied by a woman in a superb opera coat they took the table opposite to mine the young man wore a soft slouch hat which he promptly threw on the floor then he began to hammer on the table with the ferrule of his walking-stick and shout <laughs> popinot you old dog a bottle of burgundy for madame versailles it's the wine of love and laughter my eyes went instantly to the woman she was a medium-sized conspicuous blonde with a rather trim figure excellent arms and throat made the most of by a low gown of black velvet her complexion was the usual sort to be had from boxes and paint pots her mouth was a perfect cupid's bow and exquisite her nose was bourgeois but not obtrusive and not bad her eyes however were utterly bad they reminded me of cold tallow her bright yellow hair was coiled on the top of her head to give an effect of height and to lengthen her face while her companion was unspeakably drunk this woman was coldly sober she constantly refilled the man's glass but scarcely tasted her own i was evidently spectator at the epilogue of a quarrel which madame versailles was striving to drown in the mixture of alcohol and claret that popinot sold for burgundy she spoke almost in whispers but now and then the man broke out in a voice that i could hear no i won't wait no more i want them back you said you only wanted them to star in that's what you said to star in madame versailles patted him on the arm and cooed over him but her face was as cold as a wedge the man harped on the one idea no i was drunk didn't i tell you i was drunk when i did it and they've got to go back to her madame versailles suddenly changed her tactics she leaned over seized the young man by the collar and shook him what she said i could not hear but the effect on the drunken youth was marked he pleaded in blabbering slobbers that's all right you keep them they're yours you dissolve them in vinegar and drink them like cleopatra you're a good little thing you're a good little sweet thing the man's drooling grew gradually inarticulate his head wobbled presently he made an ineffectual effort to pat madame versailles porcelain cheek and fell forward with his arms outstretched on the table Popinot's burgundy was indeed distilled from the poppies of the Oise. The woman ordered a tumbler of whiskey and drank it like water. My hour had arrived. I arose and threaded away to her table. Have I the honor, I said, to address Madame Versailles? A furtive light came into the cold, tallow eyes. Not so loud, she said. Are you a plain-clothes Johnny? I assured her that I had attained to no such dignity as that. I was merely one coming under a flag of truce with a message from Miss Carolyn Pickney. I said this over several times and in a variety of ways before Madame's suspicions were soothed down. 
Then I laid before her the offer to pay $10,000 cash for the jewels, a clean-cut trade and no questions, the money in her hands for the jewels and ours. I did not go further into the place or details of payment. That would better follow a little later on. I'll stand for that, said Madame Versailles, if it's straight goods. But you will have to show it to Henderson. If he don't flag it, the old hen can have her shiners. I wondered mildly if we might find Henderson somewhere. Sure, said Madame Versailles. Then she summoned Popino. Call up Henderson's detective agency, she directed, and tell Bobby to chase in here. While we waited the chasing in of Bobby, I drew the celebrity out a little on the subject of the slumbering youth. He was an only nephew of Miss Carolyn Pickney and her half-brother, Bishop Simonton of New York. He was an orphan and a very ebon sheep. Having fallen a victim to Madame Versailles' charms, he had shouldered the onerous duties of an angel, burned his money, and finally swiped the jewels from his relative and bestowed them on this Dulcinea. These jewels Madame Versailles thought it advisable to retain, since the law could not take a fall out of her without jugging the youth. She appealed to me to affirm the moral soundness of her attitude in this. A poor girl must look out for herself. I was spared the embarrassment of a decision on so vexed a question by the arrival of Bobby Henderson. I was also glad of all the people in the Café La Lune d'Or when he came bursting in it. He was a person with a variegated waistcoat, many seals and yellow diamonds, and a face that would have convicted him before any jury in America without a word of evidence for the state. He sailed down upon me with the bluster of the east wind. Flash your star, he said, or jar loose from the lady. His language was beyond me, but his manner admitted of no doubt. Madame Versailles sprang up and thrust her elbow vigorously into the region of his diaphragm. Cut it out, Bobby, she said. You ain't wise to the gent. He's no plain clothes, Johnny. This thing's business. Mr. Robert Henderson was illumined. He drew up a chair and expressed his desolation at the error. Then the three of us got down to the details of Madame Versailles' business. The offer to pay cash was pleasing to Mr. Henderson. It sounded good, but he would take no chances on a double-cross being handed out. The money must be paid in his presence at a bank. No meet-me-under-the-oak-tree for him. He was on to the iniquities of the human family. By gradual, indirect suggestions, I uncovered the plan to pay at the Jefferson Trust Company in Richmond under his eye. He took to that. It was the old hen's nest, to be sure, but doubtless the only place where she could gather up so large a wad of dough. And thus, after many glasses of vile brandy, which on my part I managed to tip out deftly into the sawdust, we got the business closed. Mr. Robert Henderson nearly crushed my hand at parting. It was so rare a thing, he said, to meet one of his kind of gentlemen nowadays. Madame Versailles beamed, and we parted in genial fashion. I had a word with Popino at the door, after oiling the itching in his palm with a silver dollar. Poof! he said, 
Madame Versailles was less French than his café cat. She was born in Harlem under a shamrock. She had heard him, Popenoe, name the divine Versailles in a flood of longing for his native country. The name pleased her. She implored him to say it again and yet again, until she got it, and so came Madame Versailles. Mon Dieu! One sad split themselves with laughter. A grisette named for a palace. Monsieur Villon never did so excellent a naming. La demi-monde, l'édifice public. One saw instantly the fitness of it. He, Popeno, was a genius of the first order. And so I left him, shaking in the door, and calling upon Olympus to send down his mead of bay-leaves. Incomparable Popeno of the Golden Moon! Shortly before ten o'clock, on the tenth day of February, I walked from my hotel over to the Jefferson Trust Company in the city of Richmond. I was taken at once into the vault of the safety deposit boxes, where I found Miss Carolyn Pickney and the vault officer, Mr. Montague Thomas. This young man greeted me courteously, but I had only another stately nod from Miss Pickney. She would never come to understand the social order of a commercial civilization. One who took directions from another, no matter in how exalted a sphere that other sat, was a variety of servant. It was the theory of the slave-master bred in deep, and persisting after the decadence of the civilization that produced it. Promptly at ten, Mr. Robert Henderson arrived. He wore a large checked ulster, a top hat, and astonishingly yellow gloves. He greeted me as a lost neighbor discovered in a distant country, shook vigorously the rather limp hand of Mr. Montague Thomas, but went back on his heels before Miss Carolyn Pickney. She did not see him. She never saw him. I appreciated the need to get the matter speedily over, and requested Mr. Henderson to allow Miss Pickney to examine the jewels. He threw open his ulster, revealing a small leather handbag secured to his waist by a chain, such as is used by bank messengers. He opened the bag and took out an ancient black leather case, which he also opened and held in his hand. In it, lying coiled up against the lining of old purple velvet, was a pyramid pin, two drop earrings, and a strand of oriental pearls. Miss Pickney expressed satisfaction to Mr. Montague Thomas and directed him to open the safety deposit box. The young man fitted the key into the lock of box number 320 and drew down the door, showing the little steel vault packed with banknotes. He took out the money in packages, each enclosed by a printed slip such as are commonly used by banks, and marked two thousand dollars. Mr. Robert Henderson handed me one end of the jewel case to hold, and with his free hand he stowed these five packs of bills into the little handbag. When he had the last one safely in, he relaxed his grip on the jewel case, locked his handbag, and hurried out of the bank. I handed the case to Miss Carolyn Pickney. She opened it and caressed the jewels lovingly. But she said no word, and gave no evidence of the great emotion tugging at her, except the trembling of her hands. Then she put the case in her bosom, and went down to her carriage in the company of Mr. Montague Thomas. I went out behind the pair of them. Not in all my life had I been so thoroughly puzzled. 
What did this woman need with Randolph Mason if she intended to pay a painted actress the full value of the jewels? Any police sergeant could have done as well as he. What need was there to send me scouting into the tenderloin, and then here? The thing was idiotic. I had been waiting to see the iron lid of some hidden trap fall swiftly and crush Madame Versailles. Instead, I had carried out Mason's directions to the final letter, only to see the money paid, the incident closed, the thing ended. For Randolph Mason it was not a defeat only, it was a capitulation, a rout. His standard had been dragged off the field by a variety actress and a red-light detective. I was unspeakably bitter and depressed. My train to New York left over the Southern at twelve o'clock. I would go to the post office for some letters sent after me, get a little lunch, and hurry out of this unfortunate city. This capital of a phantom empire was historic of disaster. Reputations were always laid by the heels here. I went into the post office, got my letters, and was coming out when a deputy marshal touched me on the elbow and asked me to come up to the district attorney's office. I knew then that Mason's trap had sprung, and I hurried with the little man up the iron stairway. Mr. Robert Henderson was boiling in picturesque expletives when I entered the ante-room of the prosecutor for the government. His collar was wilted down, his wonderful waistcoat crumpled, tiny threads of perspiration lay along the fat folds of his chin. He broke out louder when he saw me. "'That's him! That's one of the gang!' he shouted. "'Now get the other one. Get this Caroline Pitney woman, and we'll land her in a penitentiary!' At this moment a tall, gracious man, with a soft, drawling accent that purred dangerously like a cat's, appeared in the doorway of the district attorney's office. "'May I inquire,' he said, who it is that is about to send Miss Caroline Pickney to the penitentiary? It's me, said Henderson. Her and this Yeager have been shoving a queer. Your language is unintelligible, said the man. Why, green goods, growled Henderson. Passing counterfeit money, that's what I mean. It was my turn to be astonished. So... The packs were counterfeit. Surely Mason could not have made so dangerous a blunder. He knew the laws of the United States. He could not have opened the doors of the penitentiary wider to us. The mere possession of counterfeit money was a crime. Perhaps he did not believe that Madame Versailles would dare to come to the officers of the law with it. Perhaps some other arm of his plan had broken down. I was amazed and alarmed. The man in the door looked inquiringly at me. I took out my card and handed it to him. He bowed. "'I am the district attorney,' he said. Then he spoke to the deputy marshal. "'Go outside, close the door, and see that I am not interrupted.' He turned then to the detective. "'Now, my man,' he continued, "'what is all this furor about?' Henderson gave the matter swiftly in detail, translating his tenderloin terms as he proceeded. When he had concluded the narrative, the district attorney asked to see the money. Henderson unlocked his satchel, took out a pack, stripped off the gum band at either end of it, and holding the end of the pack in his fingers, 
shook out the bills before the district attorney. The lawyer had been listening with the closest attention, his face clouded and distressed. Now it cleared like a summer morning. "'Are the others like this?' he said. "'The same,' replied Henderson. "'A good tenor on the top and bottom, and the rest queer.' "'Then,' said the district attorney, "'the laws of the United States have not been violated. "'These bills are not counterfeit.' "'Mr. Henderson mopped his wet face. "'What?' he ejaculated. "'It ain't good money, is it?' "'No,' replied the lawyer. "'It is not money at all.' Astonishment drove Mr. Henderson to his primal tongue. "'Hell, man,' he said. "'Tain't good, tain't bad. You're stringing me.' The district attorney was amused. He took the pack of money and spread it out on the table. "'These,' he said, are bills of the Confederate States of America. They are in no sense counterfeit. The passing of these bills for money of the United States is no crime against its laws. The federal courts have time and again so decided. Although these bills closely resemble certain banknote issues of the federal government and have been more than once complained of by the Treasury Department, then he added, with a courtly bow to Henderson, My dear sir, you have in your hands the promise of a vanished republic to pay you some ten thousand dollars. Once upon a time, these bills might have purchased you an excellent lunch and perhaps a cigar with it. I doubt it a little now. You might try Mosby Taylor on the corner below mentioned Jubal early. Then he turned to me. Mr. Parks, he said, as you have not these potent tokens of a great sentiment to assist you, I must beg the honor of your presence at luncheon with me. I have heard of Randolph Mason. For the legal principle involved in this story, see United States v. Barrett, 111 Fed, 369. End of Madame Versailles by Melville Davison Post Recording by Rick Rodstrom